One of the things which drew me to the Wars of the Roses in the first place was the fact that there are so many twists and turns over such a short space of time. We've already witnessed plenty of those so far, but the years 1462 to 1464 present an excellent example of how these events occurred. This period also demonstrates the gulf in the depth and quality of leadership between York and Lancaster. We left the irrepressible Queen Margaret and her husband Henry VI at Bamborough on the northeast coast of England in October 1462. One wonders quite what Henry made of it all, given his mental frailty in the 1450s, one would have thought that a combination of the loss of the bloody Battle of Towton and his throne, along with sudden flight into exile, might have tipped him over the edge. Was he a quivering, confused wreck of a man? Or was he aware of events, retaining both his dignity and the belief that he would eventually regain his crown? I rather fear the former, but I would like to believe the latter. Certainly Henry's impact on what happened, as before, was minimal, which is why the leadership skills of those around him mattered even more. By the end of October 1462, then, Henry was back in England, raising his standard and in possession of three formidable fortresses. The trouble was he had little else. A few ships, not many men-at-arms, and not much interest being shown by the local Northumberland gentry. To make matters worse, Warwick, in his usual energetic manner, was heading north within days of the Lancastrian landing. The royal ordnance, that's cannon to the uninitiated, were dispatched by ship to Newcastle. By early November, Edward IV himself was on his way north too, calling upon his nobles for support. The Yorkist war machine was getting into gear, and it would need to, for November was hardly an ideal time to wage a military campaign in the north. At this point, with only a tenuous hold on the northeast coast, Queen Margaret decided to leave and set sail to Scotland, leaving Henry Beaufort, Duke of Somerset, in charge. I can only assume that she felt that without more help they would fail, and sailed off to get it. Nevertheless, I don't think it could have helped the morale of the Bamborough garrison, commanded by the Duke of Somerset and Jasper Tudor, Earl of Pembroke, to watch the King and Queen disappearing out to sea. Worse still, with the sort of luck which seemed to dog Henry VI wherever he went, the ships were hit by a storm and scattered. Four ships sank, including Henry's, and the royal couple, accompanied by their French ally, de Brézé, finally arrived in Berwick in a small boat. Most of their men were washed up on the coast near Holy Isle, and one supposes they were not feeling particularly chipper about that. Meanwhile, Edward IV caught measles. Yes, really, and was laid low in Durham. Now, here's the point, really. In theory, the Yorkists were leaderless. But in practice, they had a whole bunch of capable leaders. Warwick assumed command, but to support him, he had his experienced uncle, Lord Falkenberg, his brother John, Lord Montague, 
John Tiptoft, Earl of Worcester, and a formidable knight who had only recently been a Lancastrian, Anthony Woodville, Lord Scales. The Lancastrians just did not have such heavyweight leaders to match their opponents. Even so, Warwick was not going to attack the three strongholds. The clue is in the word strongholds. It would be too costly in men and supplies. All he could do was attempt to starve them out. As long as he could keep his own armies supplied and fed, he could just wait. Well, you might ask, what was the point of sending the royal ordnance all the way north and then not use it to batter down the walls of Annick, Dunstanborough and so on? The answer is simple. Edward did not want to capture three heaps of rubble. He wanted the castles intact. The threat of the large cannons was there, and if push came to shove, he would use them, but he would rather not. There was also another dimension to this siege. Remember the Scots? They were supposed to be helping Henry VI, weren't they? Well, late in November they promised, after a few inducements, to send an army to relieve Annick, and it did set out before Christmas 1462. Unfortunately, the Lancastrian defenders, not knowing that help was on its way and with their food exhausted, decided to surrender. By the 27th of December, Edward had possession of Dunstanborough and Bamborough. In return, he had agreed to pardon the Duke of Somerset and allow the restoration of his lands and titles. Sir Ralph Percy too was pardoned. And though Jasper Tudor, Earl of Pembroke, was not prepared to accept a pardon, he was given safe conduct to Scotland. Why was Edward so generous to his enemies? Could he really trust these men? There are a couple of reasons, one pretty sensible and the other one a bit more dodgy. To persuade the defenders to give in, he had to offer terms which would be accepted quickly before the Scottish Relief Army arrived and the offer of pardon seems to have done the trick. But, as we've seen before, Edward's natural inclination was to recruit his enemies rather than execute them. And this policy has a lot to be said for it, but whether it was wise to return Dunstanborough and Bamborough into the hands of Sir Ralph Percy again is questionable. It was certainly a considerable risk. Now, of course, the Yorkist forces, including, remarkably, the pardoned Duke of Somerset, could concentrate on capturing Annick. But just when they thought it was all over, the Scottish Relief Army arrived. This was a pivotal moment. Would the Scots force Warwick to fight outside Annick or not? Would Warwick risk all in a pitched battle where he might be outnumbered by his enemy? Well, Warwick decided to pull back from Annick and wait, which, on past experience, was not exactly typical of him. Perhaps he felt that his soldiers, after a couple of months' siege in the cold and damp, might not be up for a bloody hand-to-hand -hand struggle with a fresh army of Scots. While he waited, the Annick garrison, or most of it, marched out to join the Scots, who then beetled off back to Scotland without taking on Warwick's army. 
This was very much a dearly moment. Most of the Yorkist military might was gathered in Northumberland, and Lancaster had an army of Scots, yet there was no great battle. If Warwick was cautious, one could understand it, because in the end he was able to walk into Alnwick unopposed. But why did the Scots, having raised such a large force, not attack? The answer, I suspect, is that having fulfilled their promise by relieving the Alnwick garrison, they saw little to be gained and much to be lost. It would be a tough fight, not some border raid for plunder. For all those on both sides who watched from a safe distance, it was probably a disappointment. But perhaps common sense had prevailed. Make a note of that, it's rare in this period. Only the Welsh castle of Harlech now held out against the Yorkist king, and he returned to London, followed a little later by the Earl of Warwick. But of course that was not the end of it, because this is the Wars of the Roses. In March 1463, Sir Ralph Percy, generously permitted by Edward to retain his castles of Dunstanborough and Bamborough, decided to give them back to Lancaster. Anik followed his example, and so, despite a long winter campaign to regain the castles, by May 1463, all three were once again garrisoned for Lancaster. Seriously? Yes, I know. You wouldn't read about it, would you? Well, except in my novels, perhaps.